Welcome to the podcast. My name is Rebecca York. Today we will be presenting three cases of recurrent and persistent BPPV. I have two colleagues, uh, Nina and Rachel, who will each introduce themselves and will present our cases. Nina, if you want to begin. Okay, my name is Nina Serber, and I've been a physical therapist for 25 years, the last six of which have been primarily doing vestibular rehab. And I currently work at Cal State Long Beach in their faculty clinical practice, as well as their director of clinical education and a lecturer. And Rachel? Uh, I'm Rachel Tromelin. Uh, I've been a physical therapist for 13 years, and I work at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Um, I teach the neurologic curriculum there, and I also keep an active practice of patients with vestibular imbalance disorders in the faculty practice clinic. And I'm Rebecca. Uh, I've been working as a vestibular therapist for six and a half years in Orange County, California. And let's start with Nina presenting her case first. Okay, um, I'm presenting a patient named Gloria. I really enjoyed working with Gloria and had a history of working with her. I'd seen her at least three times. And the last time I saw her, um, she's a 90-year-old female who was referred to PT roughly every year or two years for gait instability and balance training. And um, at the, the time of this case, I had been seeing her for vestibular training, lower extremity stance, muscle strengthening, static and dynamic balance activities, and had seen her previously for the same as well as for BPPV. So I had been working with her for three weeks. I should in also state what her past medical history was. Her past medical history included hypertension, uh, macular degeneration with significant visual loss. She had severe bilateral knee osteoarthritis, hypercholesteremia, and um, bilateral hearing loss, which was assisted by bilateral hearing aids. Three weeks into PT, she reported feeling off, and um, I assessed her canals and did a vestibular, thorough vestibular assessment, which was notable for um, a positive left head impulse test, and when I put the goggles on and put her through the position, she demonstrated upbeating left torsion, which lasted less than a minute. And she didn't complain of severe symptoms of BPPV. She basically just said she felt strange, never really complaining of vertigo or even dizziness. She just felt off. So um, this was in her left poster canal, and I did two canalith repositioning maneuvers, um, and resolved, which resolved her eye movement. She left with some disequilibrium, and then the next seven visits, she would come in feeling off, and I would reduce her BPPV with a modified Epley maneuver. I had treated her before and re-instructed her in the self-Epley maneuver, which she did at home. She was very compliant and mobile enough to do it properly. And for whatever reason, she would leave clear and come back to the clinic with recurrent BPPV. So my and her frustration was that we somehow couldn't get this conquered in a significant and permanent way. Um, eventually, after seven visits, it did resolve, and we carried on with her vestibular imbalance training. 
And that is pretty much my case presentation. All right, thank you, Nina. And Rachel, do you want to present your case? Uh, yes. So my patient was a patient I saw this past summer, um, was referred to me from an audiologist that I work with. Um, and the patient had been complaining of dizziness starting approximately three years ago, and no sudden onset, just sort of gradually snuck up on him over time. He reported that he, initially he would have symptoms about every other month, and they were very mild, so they were not bothersome. But in the last couple of months, they've been increasing significantly. Three months before onset, or three months before physical therapy evaluation, he had had an echoing maneuver performed um, by his physician, which he said helped the dizziness but didn't totally resolve it. Um, so as I said, he was seen by audiology first. The audiology findings, um, they found an 86% weakness on calorics, and they also found a 58% less um, directional preponderance. Um, and the findings were suggested of right-sided weakness, and the left directional preponderance was suggestive of lack of central compensation. The audiologist also tested his cervical vents, which demonstrated um, absent, were absent in the right ear, and they were normal in the left ear. And this finding is indicative of either saccule and or um, right inferior uh, cranial nerve 8 the vestibular portion, the function of that nerve. She put him in the Hall-type Dix possession as well and noted positive right torsional and updating nystagmus in both right and left Hall-pikes. This persisted whether his head was up versus head was down. When uh, the audiologist dropped his chart off to me, she said, you know, I think he has BPPV, but I also have a strong suspicion this might be something else. And there's obviously other things going on. And she suggested that I try the cantilever repositioning first, since that is the easiest thing to do, and since he did have the positive pulp like six. And then if that doesn't work, you know, abandon it and try other things. His past medical history has, he has hyperlipidemia, shortness of breath, nausea, glaucoma and cataracts, and reflux disease. He uh, lives alone and is independent in all mobility, all activity. The only dysfunction he was having with functional activities was doing things like yard work, climbing on the ladder, reported um, that he had modified his behavior. Um, the findings that I completed on initial examination um, is that he had an ABC of 83%. Modified Fitbit, he had 30% 30 out of 30 seconds in conditions one through three, and five seconds in condition four. And his dizziness handicap inventory was 24, which would be considered um, on the higher end of mild. His gait speed was normal for his age at 1.33 meters per second self-selected and 1.87 meters per second fast. So the symptoms, the positions that really gave him symptoms was when he was doing things like looking up. In particular, he really complained of having symptoms like putting in his eye drops, which he had to do quite often um, because of his glaucoma. And when he would get dizzy, it would last a couple of seconds, and but then would go away. He would also complain of symptoms of imbalance, again, kind of occurring all throughout the day, just lasting a few seconds associated with quick head and body movement. So very um, typically vestibular. His goals, um, he told me that 
you know, he's like, I don't, he said, I don't, just don't think I'm going to feel like I felt in my 20s or 30s. Um, I feel like there's no turning back. I don't want my head to spin when I move it in certain directions. And so upon examination, I put him in the hall pike stick, which was negative to the left and positive to the right with right rotary and upbeating nystagmus lasting 25 seconds. On that session, I performed the cantilever repositioning treatment to the right posterior canal three times, um, and he tolerated that really well, gave him the instructions, and then he left the clinic. Would you like me to discuss the follow-up now? Yeah, that would be great, Rachel. Okay, great. Um, so for this patient, he came back actually um, 12 total visits, and you know, in looking back, one of the big lessons I think I'm going to take away from um, this case is, you know, trying to go away from the BPBV treatment and sort of starting more adaptation treatment. So on his first follow-up visit, he told me that his um, dizziness had not changed. So I thought, well, just repeat what I did. Um, still found the nystagmus in that right rotary upbeating um, pattern with right hull like disc lasting 20, 20 seconds. So I repeated the cantilever repositioning for treatment, four times. On the second follow-up, he told me this dizziness was much better, but was still present. Again, I saw the 20 seconds of right rotary upbeating nystagmus, um, so I performed cantilever repositioning treatment, but added some vibration to the mastoid to try and ensure my success. At this point, I also taught him the home treatment so that he could carry through on days when he wasn't coming in. At this point, I had him coming in two to three days a week pending his schedule, thinking that coming in quicker and getting this resolved, we will be able to get to an adaptation habituation program much sooner. Given the fact we had all those findings on audiology testing, I thought for sure we would have to go into that process. Um, on the third follow-up, he presented with no change, so I switched techniques to the um, Samant maneuver, performed that three times, and the first time I performed it, he had a very, very severe um, reaction when sitting up. Actually, he almost pitched himself into the wall behind him. So I thought, oh, for sure, I've loosened everything um, and that he's, he's going to be better. So then the fourth time he came in, again, no change from previous. So I thought, and he still had that right rotary upbeating assignment for 20 seconds. So I said, okay, well, let's repeat the liberatory um, one more time. So then on the fifth follow-up, his right rotary upbeating nystagmus only lasted five seconds, so I thought, wow, I'm really on to something. Let's continue this liberatory maneuver. He also reported that his dizziness was much less, so I completed the liberatory maneuver. And again, when I started the liberatory maneuver, I had him follow this through at home. He said that he did it, but it was really difficult for him to do to get up the speed on his own, especially using um, a soft bed as opposed to like the um, harder mats that we have in the clinic. But he did follow that up every day. He was a very, very compliant patient. Um, again, sixth and seventh follow-up, he still had about five seconds of right rotary upbeating nystagmus and really no significant um, change. Um, and so kind of at that point in time, because he had had no significant change, I decided to um, kind of go a different avenue that perhaps the nystagmus that was present on the hall pike stick was merely more positional and that I had cleared all BPPV. So I, so I um, did some further testing. I completed an MSQ where he scored a 49.6. Um, that would classify him as severe motion sensitivity. I also completed the functional gait 
assessment, or the FTA, and he scored a 22 out of 30, again, placing him at fall risk. We, start, we changed his program now to weekly therapy, and I gave him a home exercise program of a mixture of adaptation and habituation exercises. The adaptation exercises consisted of VOR times one and VOR times two. The habituation exercises were a mixture of sit-sit-supine and some bending exercises um, as well, particularly bending and looking up, since that was the thing that kind of really drove him crazy. Um, and over the next three to four weeks, coming in once a week, he was compliant with his program, and he did make some modest changes, um, and he did improve a little bit, but kind of the dizziness was still there, and he wasn't responding as best as he could. Um, so on the last visit that I saw him, I had actually requested the audiologist to take a look, and she had suggested maybe doing some further findings, uh, further testing. So she performed that session on the ECOGs, and ECOGs were normal on the left, but abnormal on the right. And those findings were suggestive for high drops. So we referred, him, we gave him a high drops diet and referred him back to the physician um, to try to get some medical stability out of this lesion. And I instructed this patient, you know, once he was medically stable, if he still had dizziness symptoms to come back. Um, he didn't contact me, so I don't know if that means his dizziness went away with further medical management um, or it was there, it just wasn't bothersome. So I don't have the ending to this story, unfortunately, um, but that's sort of where we ended it. A very interesting case. Um, um, I'm going to present a case on a 68-year-old female who presented uh, to the clinic 10 months um, after finishing chemotherapy in June of 2015, uh, resulted in disequilibrium and decreased decreased strength, requiring a front wheel walker while walking to the bathroom. And she was spending most of her time sitting in a recliner due to the fatigue and weakness um, after her chemotherapy. Um, she also had vertigo with transitioning from sitting to supine and was previously treated for recurrent vertigo during chemotherapy and radiation bouts in the past. Um, in, her, in addition to her vertigo, she has imbalance that worsens in the afternoons and evenings as she fatigues, and she notices loss of balance requiring stepping and reaching for the walls and furniture in her home. Uh, she currently bends forward only while holding onto her furniture due to her imbalance and experiences weakness with all of her ADLs. Uh, she requires seated rest um, between the flights of stairs in her home, and she has right lower back pain when ascending her stairs with the right lower extremity. Prior to her chemotherapy, she was traveling, she was steady on, uh, with her balance, and she was walking without the use of an assistive device. Uh, her past medical history included a bilateral peripheral neuropathy of her feet and her hands that was attributed to, to her chemotherapy impaired vision with constant um, drainage of her eyes and sinuses, hypertension, and she had primary colon cancer with um, secondary metastases to her lungs and breast. In her movement analysis during the evaluation, um, her gait showed excessive ipsilateral trunk flexion and stance and circumduction um, for swing limb advancement bilaterally. With standing to supine, the patient reported that she crawled forward onto her bed, turned on her left shoulder, and then turned to her right to lie in supine to avoid her vertigo. 
Her fixation-blocked positional nystagmus screen had spontaneous left beating. Her right Dixhall pike had right torsional upbeating for six seconds with reproduction of her vertigo symptoms. Her left Dixhall pike had downbeating uh, without a torsional component and without reproduction of symptoms. And both of her roll tests were within normal limits. During her objective um, testing, her six-minute walk test was 246 meters, which was 46% of her age norm uh, without an assisted device. Her 10-meter self-selected gait speed was 0.77 meters per second, which was 59% of her age norm. She had um, bilateral lower extremity weakness per manual muscle tests, uh, both proximal and distal. Her peripheral neuropathy um, demonstrated impaired somatosensory Q integration with the mini best of a score of 8 out of 28. And her blood pressure was 139 over 86, heart rate 79. And her 30-second sit-to-stand without use of her upper extremities was five repetitions. Um, so she presented with right posterior canal canalothiasis, and I performed a canal three positioning maneuver uh, with resolution upon reassessment of the right Dixhall pike, um, no nystagmus and no reproduction of symptoms. Um, the patient presented back to me one month later uh, with vertigo from sit to supine, and her positional nystagmus assessment um, showed the same left beating spontaneous nystagmus. Her right Dixhall pike uh, was now within normal limits, but her left Dixhall pike showed left torsional upbeating nystagmus, um, less than 10 seconds with reproduction of her vertigo symptoms. Again, her bilateral roll tests were within normal limits. So she presented now with left posterior canal, canal thiasis, BPPV. I performed a canal three positioning maneuver um, with resolution after one um, maneuver per reassessment of the left Dixhall pike. Um, I instructed her on a home maneuver at that time with um, testing right Dixhall pike, testing left Dixhall pike, and then the respective treatments depending on her symptomatic side. Uh, I also instructed her on balance training with squats, on stable somatosensory and complex somatosensory surfaces, um, as well as bending forward in a squat to reach and place cups on cones um, to habituate her as she was um, cleared with her BPPV. I also started her on a cardiovascular endurance training program utilizing a new step at that time um, to work towards reconditioning after her chemotherapy. Um, luckily, the patient and her husband were able to purchase a new step um, cardiovascular endurance machine for their home. And so she was working on um, her endurance strengthening at home as well. Um, I followed up with her one month later. And again, she presented with um, reoccurrence of her left posterior canal canalothiasis. Um, I performed two canal three positioning maneuvers within that session. And per a Dixhall pike on the left reassessment, it showed resolution. Uh, three weeks later, again, she presented with left posterior canal canalothiasis, which seemingly resolved after two canal three positioning maneuvers. Uh, with one, one week later, I reassessed her. She had um, resolved her BPPV still, and her six-minute walk test had improved to 356 meters, which was a 20% improvement. And she was completing the new step 30 minutes per day. 
um, I keep in contact with this patient and uh, she told me as of yesterday that she's still um, resolved of her BPPV. Um, she knows the home maneuvers, but she's currently undergoing chemo um, for return of her cancer. So um, I may see her back in the clinic. But um, I'm interested to dis discuss kind of the similarities and differences of these three cases. Um, so it seemed between um, Nina and myself that the repositioning appeared successful within the PT treatment session, but it was unsuccessful to last um, more than a week or longer at home. And I'm um, wondering if we could attribute anything to their past medical history or hypothesize as to why the recurrence um, was occurring. So Nina, if you want to give some insight. Well, I had to first look at me and the quality of my maneuvers and the fact that in spite of the fact that I seem to successfully um, resolve her posterior canalothiasis in treatment, why wouldn't it stay resolved? And uh, was there some kind of canal anomaly that was leading to a prolonged um, regression of crystals back into the canal that I just wasn't observing? I did try to modify my um, technique and make sure that I really had the appropriate signs of um, canal sizes, uh, conclusion throughout the course of the CRM. Um, so I did go to the literature and try to see what might be causing this particular recurrence and persistence in her BPPV, and I found a couple of articles that were pertinent. Um, one is an article by Choi et al. called Clinical Features of Recurrent or Persistent Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo, which was published in 2012 in um, Otology and Neurotology. And they looked at 120 patients uh, that had um, BPPV for the first time, and they looked at persistence and recurrence. And I think it's noteworthy to differentiate between persistence and recurrence. Uh, recurrence is BPPV that re occurs in the same canal after at least two weeks of symptom-free interval following successful treatment. And persistence is BPPV that continues for more than two weeks or more than five sessions in the same canal despite repeated CRPs. So my patient had both recurrent BPPV because I'd seen her for left posterior canalithiasis this was the third time with a year or two years separating visits. And in this particular case, persistent BPPV. Now she had a history of hypertension and she had osteoarthritis. She may or may not have had osteoporosis. That was not part of her diagnosis. Um, but I found another article by um, Alessandro De Stefano and his team which was a multi-center observational study on the role of comorbidities in recurrent episodes of BPPV. And this is appropriate potentially to your patient as well. They were looking at comorbidities associated with recurrence. And what they found was that systemic disease um, can worsen the status of the posterior labyrinth, causing more frequent otolith detachment. And they found that the comorbidities included hypertension, diabetes, osteoarthrosis, osteoporosis, and depression, and that recurrence occurred in 
20% of their subjects that had one comorbid disorder and in almost 38% of subjects that had two of these comorbidities. This was an, a sample size of 1,092 patients that were suffering from BPPV. So it is possible with my patient suffering from hypertension and osteoarthritis with possible osteoporosis that um, there may have been a systemic component to the persistence of her BPPV. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, and looking at those classifications of uh, persistence versus reoccurrence, um, it sounds like the case I presented uh, was more of a reoccurrence once it was in the left canal um, and that her right resolved. And I always wondered if um, part of the core morbidity with this patient case uh, with a 68-year-old female um, undergoing chemo and radiation, if it was related to like transient change in the blood flow due to the uh, radiation field and the fibrosis of any of the um, surrounding tissues that were in that field. Um, but I was interested with Rachel's case um, where if the patient was open to completing that home candle three positioning maneuver, um, and then any aspects that of your instruction that helped with the adherence um, at home, um, and if any family or um, caregivers were involved as well. Um, so this patient lived alone, um, so there was no caregivers or family involved. Um, and I know this is going to seem like a really simple or cop-out answer, um, but I think this was something that was very, very valuable that I learned on my last job, um, was the whole idea of return demonstration and not just showing the patient the maneuver and saying, okay, you know, watch me do this and let me give you this sheet, but actually doing that and then taking it to the next step and having the patient actually perform the maneuver. So typically, um, my aim for my patients with BPPV is to do at least three repetitions, uh, three to four repetitions of the channel three positioning treatment, <clears throat> excuse me, no matter what technique I choose. So therefore, I'm usually doing the first one or two treatments, <coughs> sorry about that, but by um, treatment three and or four, I'm actually having the patient do that treatment with me there, of course, giving feedback and modifying if necessary. So therefore, I get the treatment in the clinic and get to, get to document the patient's ability to return um, for independent return demonstration. I think you make a really good point, Rachel. This is Nina. Um, in having patients demonstrate the um, self-maneuver. Um, I was a little leery initially with my 90-year-old patient to think that perhaps her technique would be adequate or her mobility would be adequate to perform the maneuver correctly. And so we definitely did some in-clinic review on multiple occasions um, to make sure that she was performing that maneuver correctly. I, I agree with you. That's been a really important point. Thanks for bringing it up. Oh, thank you. Very good. And then with um, Rachel's case, how he could return his symptoms um, or he felt his symptoms when looking up to administer his eye drops initially and had emotion sensitivity per the MSQ, um, were there any um, behavior avoidance or guarding of certain neck or body positions that the patient presented in um, that helped him avoid his reproduction of vertigo between the sessions? I think with this patient that his symptoms 
um, were not so severe in any position that um, he really took it, his symptoms very much in stride and was able to complete all of his regular activities. He would modify it by going a little bit slower, making sure he was using tactile support with his hands to give him that enhanced somatosensory feedback um, to help his balance. But I think he was he um, was very high level of education, so he was very cognizant of, okay, what are the things that make me dizzy, and how do I need to modify what, I, what I'm doing so I am safe doing it. So I, he um, paced himself really well through that. With uh, my patient, the 68-year-old female, uh, whenever she'd come into the clinic and I'd ask her, oh, have you had your vertigo since the last session? She often would say no. Um, but I learned to always recheck her canals because she had learned very well how to avoid bringing on her vertigo. She would hold her neck um, in flexion and in the opposite rotation. Um, so every time, whether she said yes or no, I knew to check the canals because uh, they were consistently positive, um, despite her learning to avoid stimulating them um, at home. Um, and then, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I see, you know, I tell my patients all the time that, um, you know, people aren't stupid. They figure out really quickly what makes them busy, and most people try and avoid it or minimize it somewhat. Yeah, and with my patient, um, she wouldn't avoid movement when she was sitting necessarily, but she definitely avoided head movement uh, while she was walking, largely due to her vision problems. So if she was in an unfamiliar environment, she definitely was not turning her head a lot to scan because she was using her peripheral vision to, to try and get a, as accurate a sense of her environment as she could. And she had the typical flexed kyphotic posture of an older adult. Um, but that being said, she was not afraid of moving. So we got some really good um, vestibular training work done both before and after the resolution of her BPPV. And she was not fearful with um, speed nor um, positioning of pillows in order to op um, optimize herself at least. So um, although she didn't move her head and neck a lot or necessarily look up a lot while she was mobile, she definitely um, would do it with her exercises or with her self-maneuvers. Very good. And ultimately, um, the home candle three positioning maneuver was successful for Nina and for my case. And Rachel's case had um, further work up to be done. Um, are there instances where either of you would not uh, instruct a patient on a home candle three positioning maneuver and any alternative treatment approaches um, for these patients? Um, Nina, maybe I'll start with you. Or we'll go to you, Rachel. Uh, so I think the biggest um, thing that I would really worry about um, would be, of course, if the patient was going to have the cognitive capacity to remember it and do it correctly. Um, in particular, when treating posterior canal, which is going to be, of course, the most often canal that we treat, um, if the patient is not getting enough neck flexion um, when they go to the movement where they're rolling over onto their side right before they sit up, 
you can actually dump the material from the posterior canal into the superior canal. So now you've taken a case of BPPV that is quite simple to treat and now made it incredibly hard to treat. So if the patient is not going to be compliant or, or I think they might canal convert, then I definitely don't want them doing it at home because now the superior canal is going to be so much harder to treat with that. Um, in fact, I, I think all the cases of superior canal BPPV I've seen, I say every, everyone except for two, um, I've seen maybe three or four cases where the physician sent the patient home with bare-off exercises um, and then they canal converted. Um, so therefore, you know, I have the conversation with the physician to try and stop doing that since it is so hard to treat. Um, I think certainly if the patient has um, any kind of spinal instability or significant neck and back pain where I would be worried about them doing that on their own and increasing their pain, I don't think I would allow them um, to do the treatment on their own. And also I think sort of the third thing I might be wary about is if the patient had significant anxiety. And honestly, the patient who had anxiety probably wouldn't feel comfortable doing it on their own anyway, um, but I would not want to put them in an anxiety state with me not being there. Yeah, I agree. The anxiety component is always um, one to be sensitive with as the patient might um, perform it inaccurately or then um, cause a harder time to reposition um, if it gets into the anterior canal. Um, and then uh, I've utilized on occasion um, the prolonged positioning um, if it I truly felt like um, I could get somewhere with it, but um, posterior canal not so much successful um, as a horizontal canal. Um, but any other comments on these cases or um, interesting evidence? Um, I think with me, this is Rachel, as I was going back and looking at this case and um, kind of, you know, lessons learned from moving on, is, um, you know, I think I treated the BPPV for too long. Um, I think what I should have done is maybe abandon that sooner and try some of the adaptation exercises. You know, I treated the BPPV for about seven, seven or eight sessions. Um, and I think the thing that fooled me at the time was that each session the patient you know, the patient would get better, and so I was like, okay, well, I think we're responding. He would get better, but not all the way better, and the nystagmus would be better, so I was encouraged to kind of keep going, um, but I think having the benefit of, of looking back, you know, I think what I might have done differently um, with, this, with this hindsight is perhaps only treat him for about five or six treatments at a time, you know, especially given that he was compliant and was doing this correctly at home, and then maybe gone to the adaptation exercises um, a little bit sooner. And this is Nina. Um, this was, uh, I'm, a, I'm humbled as a vestibular therapist pretty much every day. And I think that we're all pretty excited when we see uh, what appears to be typical canalithiasis. And I agree, I probably spent too many treatment visits on trying to um, reduce her, her upbeating left torsion, um, it was really challenging because it appeared to resolve and we both felt good about it and then she would come back and it was back. Um, it, was, it was humbling and when it finally did resolve, I honestly couldn't take credit for that as a result of my vestibular techniques. 
Um, I'm sure she reduced it on her own. I don't know if she had some kind of shower of small particles that just had to take its time to work its way through its system. This is one um, where I feel, in spite of my experience and work with vestibular patients, that it finally resolved so we could get back to work. Yeah, I agree. A lot of times uh, I feel like patients come in and they've done a little bit of their online research or they've spoken with their ENT or audiologist. So their expectation is, you know, they're going to be in and out in one to three visits. Um, and so educating the patient and kind of having our own limitations of how many visits are we willing to go after the uh, potential BPPV or is it something else? Uh, I always think it's great as a clinician to question your own habits and keep uh, going back to the literature. But thank you both, uh, Rachel and Nina, for presenting your cases and providing your insights. And we'll look forward to the next podcast.